6. In the book of 1 Peter, we have been learning what it means for Christians to live as strangers in this present world. And yet, as we do live as strangers in this world, we have been learning what it looks like and, and how we can actually remain steadfast. We can maintain our hope and our joy even in the midst of what can often become awkward and difficult circumstances. It can be awkward sometimes for Christians to live as Christians in this world, can't it? We can feel out of place. But from the beginning, this has been the way it works. From the beginning, God has set apart his people unto himself. Even before there was sin in the world. Back in Genesis 1 and 2, God set Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He distinguished them from all the rest of creation, and they existed apart unto the Lord. That was before there was any sin. And so there was nothing to set Adam and Eve apart from, but they were dedicated to the Lord in a special relationship. But that pattern continues throughout Scripture. After sin enters into the world and corrupts the world, we still see that God sets His gracious favor upon His people. He sets them apart from the world, and He sets them unto Himself. He designates his people. And we see that all throughout the Old Testament. We see it in the call of Abraham when God calls him to leave his pagan city and to follow him, to sojourn in a land that he did not know. We see it in the deliverance of Israel from slavery when even during the plagues, God made a distinction between Egypt and his people. And then God delivered his people out of Egypt from slavery, and now at Mount Sinai, God says, you belong to me. I am the Lord who delivered you. We see this throughout Israel's history, beginning even with Joshua, who, as he led the people into the promised land, is, is challenged to choose whom he will serve. And he calls Israel this day to choose whom you will serve, because he cannot serve Yahweh alongside any other god or master. In the same way, the prophets constantly come along to the people of Israel and remind them that they belong to God and they are called to live like it. They are devoted to him alone and they ought to be trusting in him alone. And this pattern carries over into the New Testament and the establishment of the church. The Apostle Peter teaches in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, we've seen it in our study, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Get this, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. As those who are chosen by God for salvation, by his sovereign grace alone, we who are in Christ have been set apart from the world. And we have been set apart unto the Lord. We have been, as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead 
to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That language is language of new birth, of regeneration, of a new creation. It implies a completely new life as the people of God. It is not just a polishing of the old life. It is not just an addition to the old life. It is a complete rebirth. And as such, there is and there must be a clear line of demarcation between God's people and the rest of the world. And so James challenges us with this, this idea when he says in James chapter 4, verse 4, that friendship with the world is enmity with God. That word enmity means strife or conflict. Therefore, he says, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You can't be both. You can't love both. You can't be devoted to both. There is a distinction between God's people and the rest of the world. And the Apostle John exhorts us with that in 1 John 2, verse 15, when he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. The idea there is not that we can't enjoy certain aspects of the world, but the idea is that don't be devoted to the world. Don't be set apart to what this world teaches you. And, and, the, and the pleasures that this world wants to drag you along with. For John says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This is the truth that is behind Peter's most foundational command at the outset of the book of 1 Peter. Underlying all of this, that as God's people who have received his saving grace in Christ Jesus who have been set apart as his own special people to show forth his glory in the world, Peter says, be holy, as the one who called you is holy. You have been set apart. That's what holy means. Now live according to your calling. Be who you are in Christ. Now that is not to say that we are supposed to produce works of holiness and and goodness in our own strength. But Peter even explains in chapter 1 that we are to set our minds and hopes on the grace of God that has saved us and that will deliver us to our eternal inheritance in Christ. He's not saying pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Here's a checklist of things that you ought to do in order to be acceptable in God's sight. That's not what he means when he says be holy. What it means is set your hopes, set your minds, set your hearts on the finished work of Jesus Christ, and then live in light of what he has done for you. We set our affections on Christ. We seek to know him and to draw near to him through his word, to love him with all of our hearts, and then to live according to what he has made us and what we learn from him. In other words, True Christianity is a life-changing faith that stands out as distinctively different, even strange in the world as we know it. And what Peter is teaching us here in 1 Peter is to embrace that, 
to embrace that holiness, to embrace that distinctiveness, not to go out and to be weird for weird reasons, but to embrace and accept the fact that if we are going to live godly lives, we are going to look strange to the world. And he calls us to set our hopes entirely on Christ alone, for he is infinitely trustworthy. And on that foundation of faith, Peter now teaches us how to navigate the difficulties of this world in a steadfast and hopeful and godly and holy way. And so as we come to our text for today, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, Peter has just finished a powerful statement on the triumph of the Lord Jesus Christ over sin over death, and over hell. That's where we were last week in chapter 3. And he has proclaimed now the glorious gospel of eternal life and steadfast hope that we find only in Christ and only in his finished work. And this, Peter says, changes everything. It completely upends everything. Because Jesus died on the cross, and because on that cross he bore the punishment of sin in our place, the sin, the judgment that we deserve, he bore it for us, and he was buried, and he rose again, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father on high. All who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation will be saved. You say, saved from what? Saved from judgment. Saved from sin and reconciled to God so that we have peace with Him. And those who are saved are converted. I like that word better than the word saved, frankly, personally. I'm saved is fine, that's a fine word to use. But we talk about the day when we were converted to Christ. When we were converted, we were saved. We were regenerated. We were born again. That tells us what kind of salvation we're really talking about. And now in our text for today, Peter explains what that looks like in those who have experienced it. What does the life of a regenerated person look like? What does the life of a converted person look like? What does it look like to be born again? What has changed? What is different? How has it changed? What does it mean for us? That is what Peter answers in here as he begins to explain the new life of steadfast hope that is produced in us by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's look at our text. If you'll follow along with me as I read, I'm reading... 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do living in sensuality, 
passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join in with the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. There is a fundamental and distinctive difference between those who belong to Jesus and those who do not. And I think one of the major mistakes that the church of the 20th and 21st century has made is the assumption that we can reach the world by looking like the world. And I think we have found enough evidence over time to see how bad of a mistake that really was. There is a fundamental difference. We are not like the world, and we don't need to pretend that we are. That doesn't mean that we need to be arrogant. Because if we understand who we truly are and why we are different from the world, there is nothing to boast about in that. Because it's a work of Christ alone. But one preacher stated it this way, if the radical implications of the Christian gospel are going to take root in the lives of men and women and display the radical impact of that to the culture, the world will find it disturbingly strange. Gospel life, the Christian life, is strange in the eyes of the world at large. And Peter is constantly pressing home this idea, this important point. Get this straight. You, in Christ, are not and cannot be just like everybody else. Oh, I know that there are some ways in which we're all the same, because we're all humans and we all live on the same planet. We have shared experiences and we have shared tendencies, humanly speaking. But at the heart, there is a fundamental difference. It is a difference that is produced in us by the Holy Spirit because we are set apart from the world unto the Lord as his chosen people. And this conversion is a life-altering experience. It changes our view of the world. It changes our relationships. It changes our conversations. It changes our interests and ambitions. It changes our pursuits. It changes what we think is funny and where we find our entertainment, and how we spend our free time. It changes our sensitivities and our convictions. It changes our identity. It changes our character. It changes everything about us. As Paul said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has been improved. Is that what he says? Almost caught you there, didn't I? The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We are not what we once were. Christian, you are not what you used to be. Everything has changed. 
And in this text before us, Peter describes that change in three categories. And I want us to consider this morning these categories of change that are rooted in the steadfast hope that we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to warn you, we're only going to get to the first one today. So as I drag the first one on for a little bit, don't get antsy. We're only going to look at one. We're going to look at the next two, Lord willing, next week. But I want us to understand what it is that Peter is describing, how it is that this new hope in Christ, this new life that we have in him has changed. And the first change that we see in this text is that steadfast hope in Christ changes our lifestyle in this world. Just for reference, the second thing we'll see comes in verse 4, and that's it changes, our steadfast hope changes our expectations of the world. Talks about how the world is going to respond to us, and then it changes our future hope, our hope in the next world. That's going to be the end of the passage. We'll get to all that next week. Today, I want us to focus on this, that steadfast hope changes our lifestyle in this world. We see that in verses 1 through 3. And all of these changes begin with a very important phrase right at the beginning of the text. Verse 1, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Stop right there. That is the foundation of everything he is about to say. This ties what he is about to say to what he has just said in chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. And that is important because the change that Peter describes here is a change that is brought about by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It is not something that we are called to just pursue and produce in our own strength. We can't do that. This is not a matter of pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and getting our life in order all on our own. And for that matter, it isn't even about just seeing Jesus as a mere example of how to suffer well. Yes, he is an example of how to suffer well. Yes, he has shown us godly character through the midst of unjust suffering, but there is more to it. The Christian life has never been about just following good examples or filling out a behavioral checklist in order to make our lives better in this world. What Peter is saying here is that the Christian life rests on and is built on the finished work of Christ alone. I love what we sang this morning. There were two different phrases in the same song, two different stanzas. Did you catch the difference? One stanza said, and I am now complete in thee. And the next stanza said, and I shall stand complete in thee. Did the author just get confused and forget? No. There's, there's a theological principle there. In Christ, you are now complete. Your works do not add one thing to your salvation. You are complete. And one day, the entire progress of your salvation will be complete as you see your Savior face to face. And you are, rem you are forever removed from the penalty, the power, and even the presence of sin. But right now, Christian, you are complete in Christ. And this is what guides how you live in this life. 
in this daily life, in this world. The gospel of Jesus Christ and our embrace of that gospel is the foundation of our salvation. But it does produce a change in us right here, right now. A Christ-centered, a Holy Spirit-produced change that works not from the outside in, but from the inside out. That's how Christian change works. This is a heart change that results in a change of mind and then fleshes itself out in a change of behavior. The heart change began in the previous passage with the embrace of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. That's what he was getting at then. Now, in verse 1, Peter addressed the change of mind that comes next. The change of mind that comes next. He says in verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Okay, so here's the reality. In light of the reality of Jesus' suffering and death, so we talked about in chapter 3, Peter says, now arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. I find it interesting there that Peter doesn't say, do what Jesus did. Or, you also must suffer in the flesh. That because Jesus suffered, you also must suffer. And that may be true, but that's not what he says here. It may or may not be God's will for us to suffer and die for our faith. But either way, Peter is calling us to a particular mindset, a way of thinking. And he says, arm yourselves. Now that's wartime language, isn't it? That's, that's language that suggests conflict and fighting. The Apostle Paul speaks of it in Ephesians chapter 6. And he calls Christians to take up the appropriate spiritual weapons in order to stand firm against the spiritual attacks that come at us on every side, every day. Living the Christian life, living for Christ in this world is war. It is spiritual warfare. And that signals for us a certain seriousness and a certain sobriety that we must have as we live for God in this sinful world. Beloved, there is no room for carelessness. There is no room for idleness. There is no time for us to coast through life and just enjoy the pleasures of this world without thinking about our relationship to God or His call on our lives. Letting ourselves get attached to the world distracted by its pleasures and feeling at home here leaves us vulnerable to spiritual attack and sinful temptations. And the change of mind that Peter describes here begins with a proper understanding of the nature of the spiritual warfare that we face every day that is alive and active in this world. He's calling us to have a realistic view of who we are and where we stand in this world that we are strangers here, that there is a real war going on that cannot be fought with armies and physical weapons. It is a spiritual warfare with the powers of darkness 
and with the sinful tendencies of your own flesh. We are strangers in this world. We recognize this this war when the rest of the world doesn't. And he's calling us to understand that if you are in Christ, you are at war. And we are not just like everybody else. We can't live in this world just like everybody else does. We are strangers here. And we are, by virtue of our godly identity and our godly character, in a sense, at least in the eyes of the world, we are, in fact, enemy combatants in this world. Not only are we strangers, but in large part, we are not welcome. Because we go against the evil status quo of a world that is in spiritual darkness. And so we must be vigilant. We must be alert. We must be diligent and sober-minded. We must take our faith seriously. Now, what is it that we are to arm ourselves with? He says, arm yourselves. What do we arm ourselves with? Well, we could spend a lot of time talking this morning about the Christian spiritual armor. And there are texts of Scripture that do that. But Peter has one specific thing in mind here. So that's what we're going to consider this morning. He says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. The same way of thinking is who? Is Christ. And what is he talking about? The thinking of Christ who suffered in the flesh, as we saw last week, to the point of death. That wasn't just talking about physical suffering. It was implying his death on the cross. And specifically in how he handled that without reviling, without returning evil for evil, without sinning in any way. That's what Peter has has listed out through chapters 2 and 3 here. Now I understand no death that we could ever face could ever compare to the death of Christ. And we are not called to be a Messiah like Christ was. But Peter's point here is to highlight the willingness to endure suffering for the purpose of fulfilling the will of God. This is the mindset that Jesus had throughout his suffering and death. And Peter says that's the mindset we must have as well. As we face temptations in this world, as we are challenged for our Christian faith, as we even might suffer for the sake of righteousness, we must think of our suffering in terms of the gospel and the will of God as Jesus did. In other words, a willingness to to endure suffering without a spirit of self-preservation or revenge, but with a mind toward fulfilling the word of God and the will of God and remaining faithful to him, all of that is a clear demonstration that we belong to him. It's a clear demonstration that we have the mind of Christ and that we follow him. Peter is saying, have the mind of Christ as you suffer for him. And as you suffer in the way that Christ did, as you suffer for your faith and respond the way he demonstrated for you, and as you live with his finished work and your eternal glory in view in the midst of your suffering, you will show that you are not attached to this world. You will show that your hope is in heaven. 
This is why we've talked as Christians before that in this world, as we take a stand for Christ, there, there isn't just a right thing to do, but there is a right way to do it. And many times Christians have gotten up in arms about this or that perceived attack and they have responded in kind to the rest of the world. And what do they show the world? We're just like you, only with a religious spin. When we fight for the world's battles and when we fight for the world's values with the world's weapons, we show that we are of this world. And Peter is saying, have this mind in you, as it was in Christ when he suffered unjustly. That your suffering is not an opportunity for you to stand up and fight for your rights and to make a statement in this world, to put those unbelieving pagans in their place. Your responsibility is to fulfill the will of God. And if that means that you die at the hands of unjust men, then so be it. God's in charge. But I am going to demonstrate the character of Christ. I am going to, to live for him. I am going to keep my eyes on the eternal goal. Have that mind in you, and you will demonstrate that you belong to Christ. And on the other hand, the opposite is also true. An unwillingness to lay our lives down for, the, for, for righteousness' sake, uh, a, a, a commitment to a vindictive or a self-preserving or resentful attitude when we suffer is evidence that we are not. Peter's call here is to think like Jesus thought and to view our suffering in the light of the gospel, remembering God's promise to us, remembering his peace with us, and remembering his purpose for us in life and in eternity. And when we think this way, then we are willing to bear our suffering graciously because our hope is secure in Christ himself. And then Peter says something very interesting that helps us to see the role of suffering in the believer's life. He says next, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? It's a little bit confusing at first. There are several ways that this has been interpreted over the years, and there are actually a couple different ways that I think we can look at this from a couple different angles. But I want us, before I explain that, to be very clear on one thing. I want us to understand this, that this is not saying that suffering produces sinlessness. This is not saying that suffering produces victory over sin. And it is not saying that we can have complete victory over sin in this life. That won't happen until we see the face of Jesus. And this is not saying that there is, there is some certain degree to which we can abuse ourselves or allow ourselves to be abused so as to burn off all sin in our lives. That's not what Peter is saying here. But I do think there are two angles that we can consider that help us to understand the role of suffering and the mindset we ought to have in suffering. One angle of this phrase is to connect it to the reference of the suffering and death of Jesus back in chapter 3. In other words, the Christian who has suffered to the point of death in this world has ceased from sin and is forever with the Lord. 
think that's one way we can look at this. I don't think that's the complete picture, but I think that's one aspect of what's going on here as you consider it in light of the suffering and death of Christ. And that can certainly be a great source of encouragement to us, can't it? I mean, as we groan under the weight of sin in this life, and we watch its effects on the world around us, and we wrestle with its power in ourselves, and as we, as we struggle with that, we can still press on, and we can rejoice because we have a hope. We have a hope that will be fulfilled in the future, that when we pass on from this life, we will be sinless in the next. To live is Christ. And to die is gain. And the worst the world can do is kill us. So we welcome it, if that be God's will, because we know where we're going. But there is another angle that we can consider that is also instructive for us right here and right now. That phrase, ceased from sin, could have the idea of being done with that. Been there, done that. Got the scars to show it. We'll see that idea again in verse 3 in a moment. But the idea here is that a willingness and a readiness to suffer for the sake of righteousness rather than to go along with the sin or to join into the wickedness of the world around us demonstrates that we are no longer slaves to sin. That our slavery to sin is over and done with and that we are now pursuing Christ. I think we can learn from both of those angles of this phrase. We need to understand that one who truly has the mind of Christ, a regenerated, spirit-led, Christian way of thinking, is not a slave to sin. Christian, that sin that's got a grip on you today is not your master. So in the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit, put it behind you and get help if you have to. You are not a slave to sin because you can't serve two masters. You're a slave to Christ. We are not slaves to sin, but we have forsaken our sin and we are growing in our rejection of sin. We're not perfect. We still slip up. We still fail. We have bad days. We're sinners. But we are not slaves to sin. We are forgiven, and we are growing. And we ought to be growing in spiritual strength and purity. Sin should be losing its grip on us. And you say, I want it to lose its grip on me. Help! What am I supposed to do? Well, you've come to a good place. This is why you need the body of Christ. Because sometimes we need help. We need somebody to point out where we have sin in our lives. We need somebody to counsel us with the Word of God. And we certainly need to be sitting under the preaching and teaching of the Word so that we will grow by it, so that we will be filling our minds with what is true and what is right and what is good. And as we do that, then we will be emptying our minds of what is evil. We will be seeing victory over that sin. That is evidence that we are truly born again. But then on an encouraging level, when we grow weary in that fight, 
and you grow weary in that fight, don't you? I do. When we grow weary in the fight against sin and in the spiritual warfare that we face day in and day out, we can take heart because we know that the the fight is worth it. That one day we will be completely free from sin. And we will be free from any influence of sin in our lives and in the world. Therefore, we can, like Christ, take up our cross today and follow him. Whatever the cost. Willingly, confidently, and joyfully. And we can graciously endure anything that this world might throw at us for Christ's sake. Because we know we are eternally secure in him. This is the mindset that we must have. That we must cultivate. This is the mindset that the Holy Spirit produces in all of his people. That empowers us to be steadfast in hope even when we suffer. Peter is calling us Christians, think like Christ. Stop thinking like the world. Stop trying to fight the spiritual warfare with the world's weapons. Stop letting your mind be anchored to the world. Fix your mind on Christ. Think like Christ. But the Christian life and our steadfast hope is not just about what we know. A regenerated heart will produce a renewed mind. And a renewed mind will produce godly behavior. That's the emphasis of Scripture. And that is the order it has to happen. And so we look at verses 2 and 3, and we see this change of behavior. Peter says in verse 2, So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The reality of where we stand with God in heaven through the gospel of Jesus Christ changes how we live on this earth. It changes our purpose. It changes our passions. It changes everything else about the way we live in this world. It is a drastic change. It is a complete change. It is a total change transformation. And who doesn't want that, right? Everybody wants change. Every Politicians campaign on change. They don't ever tell you what change looks like. Just, we just know that whatever is has to be changed. I deal with this in the Air Force all the time. I have to learn new procedures for just about everything I do because some airman came along, got a new job, wanted a good bullet point on his review, so he changed something. And now the rest of us have to adjust. Everybody wants change. We always think that Change is, is always good, and, and it, we always have to change something, right? But what is the right kind of change? What kind of change do we really need? We talked about this on Wednesday night, didn't we? What needs to change in order for us to be steadfast and joyous in this world? It isn't your circumstances. It's your perspective. It's your faith. It's it's where you are anchoring your faith and, and your hope. But when that change happens in our hearts and in our minds, it will show itself in our behavior. So he says, so as not to live for the rest of the time in the flesh. 
for human passions, but for the will of God. So this is a transformation of the heart and of the mind and of the way of life. Peter says that having armed ourselves with the same thinking as Jesus Christ, we, we no longer live for human passions. And that phrase, to live the rest of the time in the flesh, simply means that it has to do with living the rest of our earthly lives. It's not talking about sinful activity. It's living the rest of the time that you have in your body, your flesh. And the implication is that now that we have been born again through the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ, every moment of our lives from here on forward is to be lived not for ourselves and for our ungodly human passions, but for the will of God. Now, what is the will of God? That's a question, question people want to ask. People now have to write books about that because... We're crippled in making decisions in life because we desperately want to know the will of God. And we want to know, what is God's will for this? And what is God's will for that? How do I figure out? And then I've got charts, and I've got questionnaires, and I've got surveys, and I've got all these things that I can do to figure out the will of God. Hey, look, what does the Bible say the will of God is? 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. That has to do with spiritual growth, godliness, maturity, spiritual maturity. You need to be making wiser, godly choices now than you made five years ago. You need to be growing in your understanding of who God is and your ability to live according to godly wisdom. That's sanctification. We're getting better. You're not where you need to be. I'm not where I need to be. We're often frustrated at where we are because we know we need to be further down that road but we're progressing. That's sanctification. That's spiritual growth. What is the will of God? Maturity. Colossians 1, 28, Paul says that I do all these things, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That is the goal of the will of God in our lives. Now, what is the action of the will of God in our lives? What are we to spend our lives doing? Does Jesus have anything to say about that? Yes, he does. What's the greatest commandment? Jesus says in Matthew 22, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. What's the great commission Jesus gave to his disciples right before he left this world? Go and make disciples of all nations. It says in Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses here, there, and everywhere. And we could go on through the whole New Testament and we could find the will of God for our lives. Explained for us in terms of being holy, proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, serving one another, equipping one another, teaching one another for ministry. Seeking the fruit of the Spirit. Here's one. Gathering as the church. You want to know the will of God? I can tell you this. If you're planning to do something that conflicts with those things, you are not doing the will of God. That is not the will of God. You say, well, I don't know which color car to buy, blue or red. What's the will of God for that? You know what? On that one, you can probably make up your own mind. 
point is this, as our catechism question goes, what is our only hope in life and death? Do you remember? That we are not our own, but belong, body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior Jesus Christ. What is the will of God? Lord, I'm yours. And whatever you have to do in my life to make me more godly and to make me a better discipler, to make me a better minister in this world, to do what you have called me to do in this world, whatever you have to do to make that happen, do it. I'm yours. Can you honestly pray that prayer today? I suspect some of you can. I don't know who you are. I just know that's a much harder prayer to pray than we think it is. Because we know what that could mean. But if we're in Christ, our hearts have been changed and our minds have been renewed, then we are not here to live for our own passions. We are here to do the will of God. That is why the New Testament writers so commonly referred to themselves as bondservants. The word means slave. Slaves of Christ. Through the death, burial, and resurrection and the ascension of Christ, we are made free from sin. We have been freed from bondage to sin. But that does not mean that we are free to just go on and do whatever we want. God forbid we would destroy ourselves if we did that. We have been freed to live in bondage to Christ. We belong to God. Our purpose is to fulfill his will and to demonstrate his character in the midst of a sinful world. We are born again to a living hope, to a joyous union with Christ in the heavenly places. Therefore, we are no longer in bondage to the former sinful human passions, but we have been freed to live for the will of God for his purpose, according to his holy word, and for his supreme glory. That's why we're here. And that means, as Peter goes on to say in verse 3, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Those words, those descriptions are uncomfortable words, aren't they? but they define the extreme pleasures of the sinful world. They refer to excessive fleshly indulgence in having to do with sexual activity and perversion, having to do with physical appetites and excess, having to do with entertainment, having to do with interpersonal relationships, and even having to do with religion. It describes it all. In fact, when describing and considering what these concepts of drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties have to do together, some historical documents have used those terms to describe, as one commentator wrote, a band of drunken, wildly acting people swaggering and staggering through public streets wreaking havoc. Does that sound like anything we've seen in the last year? That's been the trend of human societies all through history. And so it was in Peter's day. And so it is in our day. But get this. Those characteristics are not always displayed, swaggering and staggering through the streets, wreaking havoc. You say, I don't do that sort of thing. 
But understand this, that while it may not always be displayed or expressed in wild, uncontrolled public displays, all behavior of those who are outside of Christ falls into these categories. Are you kidding me? Because it is all done in rebellion to the Most High God. As we read in the book of Isaiah, all our righteous deeds, apart from the saving work of Christ, are as filthy rags. Even on your best day, this is who you are without Christ. And this, no doubt, is who many of them were to whom Peter was writing. This is who you used to be. And he says, the time is past for that. You've been there. You've done that. You've seen how empty it is. The Apostle Paul describes this. If you want to turn over with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11, through 11. we've got a few passages we can look at here. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, through 11. he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteousness will not or that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Here's the good news. And such were some of you, but you were washed. That's Christ. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The gospel changes everything. And even if that's who you once were, that is not who you are now. So don't call yourself that. You are in Christ. In Galatians chapter 5, you can turn over there. Paul describes the sharp contrast between those who live according to human passions and those who live for the will of God. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's who you once were. Now here's the good news. But the fruit of the Spirit. You have the Spirit, right? If you're in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you and working in you. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Because you have been saved by God's grace, you can and you must now live by His Word and His character. You are holy. Now be who you are in Christ. And Peter says the time that is past suffices for doing those ungodly things, those works of the flesh. You've had enough of those things, haven't you? Have you, have you been to the bottom of the barrel yet? Have you seen the emptiness of living for the flesh? Have you seen that the world continues to live in, in rampant excess and indulgence and yet never seems to be truly happy? Why do you think you're going to be any different? 
You've had enough, haven't you? Now put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't live for those things anymore. Live for Him. You've been rescued from those things. Now stand up, Christian. Take your cross. Turn your back to your former sinful way of life and live for Christ. You've been born again. You have been made holy. You have been renewed in the spirit of your mind. And you have been empowered by the Holy Spirit to grow in grace and godly character. Now get to it. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 10. You can turn there and look at it. The Apostle Paul exhorts us, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You have died to those old things. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death what is earthly in you. He goes on and he lists lists those sins again. Verse 8, but now you must put them all away. Verse 9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Verse 10, and have put on the new self. You're a whole new person. which is being renewed in, the, in knowledge after the image of its creator. One more passage, Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among them we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. Listen, if you are not a Christian, if you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, that is who you are. Say, well, I'm a good person. I know, I don't doubt that. However, this is who you are. Because it doesn't matter how good you behave in comparison to other people. You are measured by the perfect standard of God's own holiness. And you can never measure apart from Christ. This is where the good news comes in. Look down at verse 4 of Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in loving kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But now look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Created in Christ Jesus, that is salvation by grace alone. You are not your own creation. You are not a self-made person. You are a redeemed sinner by the grace of God alone. You are a new creation in Him. Created for what? For good works. This is how we live as a new creation, according to His design. How do you know how to live? How do you know what those good works are? Again, this is where the law of God comes in. Not for the purpose of saving ourselves, but for the purpose of understanding what goodness looks like. 
This is where the fruit of the Spirit comes in. This is where the exhortations of the New Testament come in. But one thing is clear. There are only two options. Either you are a child of darkness or you are a child of God. There is no middle ground. Christians, you are children of God because you have been born again through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is time to stop living like you're a child of this world. Romans 6.13 commands us, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. It is time to clothe yourselves with the mind of Christ. It is time to embrace the cost and to live for him. Beloved, time is short. Whatever time you have left on this earth, is to be spent living fully for him. Christians, how are you using your time today to seek the Lord, to follow him, to obey him, to proclaim the gospel of the Lord? How are you striving to orient your lives to this? If you're among us today and you are not a Christian, then you are under the other option. You are, as Scripture defines it, a child of darkness. And the Bible is clear that God's wrath abides on you because you are a sinner. And all who die in their sin will face eternal punishment. But God is a merciful God. God is a merciful God. Hear me. God is a merciful God. And he has made a way of rescue, of salvation for all who come to him by faith in Jesus Christ. You need change in your life. I know it. You know it. You need change in your life. Well, true change, lasting change, meaningful change, the right kind of change comes through being born again, through finding an entirely new life that is reconciled to God and has peace with God so that his wrath and his anger toward your sin has been satisfied in Christ. Friends, won't you turn today from your wicked ways? Won't you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Won't you call upon his name for salvation? He is able. He is willing. He will save. Father, we thank you for our time and your work today.